Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Rather than start at Hebrews 11, which says, obviously, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Um, there was something written in uh, in First Peter. I want to use that as why, by way of introduction before we pray. And um, yeah, it's in First Peter chapter one, verse three to nine, and it says this: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes through, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is... Peter encouraging an epistle written in the time of the early church, encouraging those who were struggling through the grief, specifically through the Roman Empire, who had clamped down on the church. And um, the church faces various trials wherever you are in the world, some directly, some indirectly, and none so... And we, do, we, do, we suffer the same things in England, though we may not necessarily be persecuted in the direct sense, but we face trials that challenge what we believe. And so we want to look at the life of David and see how does the life of faith work out. Is faith this irrational thing that we just have regardless? I think David challenges all those notions of looking at faith as being something that we just have without any real reason or rationale. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, another day we can gather, Lord. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing, Lord, that even today I can stand here before you, Lord, before your people, Lord, and pray that, Lord God, you will have your way. You will speak to them. I thank you, Lord, because, you know, through my life, Lord, through the things that, Lord, you've brought me through, um, you've made, given me great counselors, Lord, you know, like you, like Abigail to David, Lord, like Barnabas to Saul, Lord God, um, and to who became Paul. Lord, you've placed people who have um, built me up, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that even so I can do so and help this body right now, Lord, to grow, become mature, become vibrant, Lord, come active in faith, in thoughts, in deed, Lord. So have your way with your people amongst even myself, Lord who needs um, your grace, Lord, even to speak today. Have your way, I pray. Amen. Um, 1 Samuel 17. Strange enough, it's, the, it's, a, it's a pivotal story. It's a pivotal children's story. Um, I very rarely hear it teach. So I thought, let's look at the life of David and Goliath. Um, so lessons about faith. Bear in mind what we've just read about the various trials you go through, which makes and helps us to affirm the genuineness of our faith. I'm always aware that when we pray, and sometimes we're praying for things that will really help improve, to improve our lives, that we are aware that when we pray for our lives to improve, then we need to have that challenge to see whether it's real. 
And that's why Peter, in this particular the epistle that we started with, says, think it not strange that when you have a problem that arises, and think about whether you're being reasonable when you pray that that challenge will go away. The thing about David and why we want to look at the life of David is because David meets challenges head on. We don't pray that our difficult boss will just go away or get fired. You know? We need to go through that. And there's oftentimes we need to be able to deal with the realities of being around difficult people. David is faced with a difficult person because Goliath isn't just huge, he can chat too. You know, a big guy with mouth. And he has left all Israel impotent. They do not want to fight. They come to fight, but no one wants to fight. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 to 11, I wanted to resist reading this because it's like 58 verses. But you know what, sometimes, let's just go through it and break this down and look at the story. So I don't want to really go too deep, but I just want to kind of take you through meeting challenges head on. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sukkoth, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sukkoth and Azkah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and, bronze, and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to this line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then he will be, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Then Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. So this is the introduction, setting the scene. The scene, obviously, this is written after the fact. Whenever I look at this chapter, it's like you you think of this huge battle, David and Goliath, and look at modern newspapers today, how they cover an article. And the economy of words here have to really be taken into consideration. Because obviously, if this was a news article today, it would be pages and pages. And many different angles. People would be talking about, you know, David's brothers, David's window cleaner, David's everybody. Because that's just how people report the news nowadays. Everything's interesting. But the economy of words by the writer here is something that we have to kind of take up. This was one day, but it was one day like none other for Israel. And he starts by setting the scene by saying that there was this huge challenge. Now, what we've got to understand about the Philistines, specifically for this particular period, for about 100 years, they were the arch enemies of Israel. Now, an arch enemy is someone like Lex Luthor to Superman. Or the Joker to Batman. They're the the antithesis of what you stand for. So, you'll find that all Superman's nobility and wanting to be very even-handed and fair and upright and just is counteracted by Lex Luthor, who is despicable, underhanded, will do anything that he can to make Superman and everyone else's life difficult. The same thing with Joker. The Joker is about chaos, disorder, 
and he stands against Batman who wants order and form, everything to be together. And this is what an arch enemy is. So the Philistines come and the way that they speak to Israel is based on, you know that me and you have a huge battle. Samson had come along and had been a huge implement to make, to bring back the Philistines and cut them down to size. Now they have Goliath. And they're saying, now we have somebody to challenge you. Samson's long gone. Saul was even no longer a factor. Saul, because of his rebellion, was no longer a factor. And that's why he says, he looks at you and he looks at Saul and he says, come on, where's Saul now? Saul was able to defeat us when he was younger, but he's not able to defeat us now. So the scene has been set. And the scene is set by saying that this guy was basically huge and he was well-armored. Who was going to be able to beat someone like this? And that's why the economy of words is important. They're describing what he had to say it was an impossible task. So that's the introduction, verses 1 to 11. Verses 12 to 19 is the scribe's way of introducing the solution. And so that's why immediately after verse 11, we see all of the obstacles being displayed and the words that have been said, it now brings the solution. And so it begins in verse 12 with David. Now David was the son of the Ephraim of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advancing years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ether of, of dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of, the, of their thousands, and see how your brothers fear. And bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now we know they weren't really fighting. They were standing up and making noise. But there's two, two key things here. Now in the introduction of David, we see two specific numbers. And this is just my ability to say, you know what, let's learn something through the numbers. David is presented as the eighth son. Eight is symbolic of the new creation. Eight meaning the new creation because it's the eighth day or the day after everything was created and God rested. So eight always represents now walking in the newness of life. Now having everything been created, the eighth day was now the first day of the rest of your life. Children in Israel were circumcised on the eighth day because now that was the new day, the new beginning, the new dawn. Of something, And so David being presented, and obviously the economy of words being put in mind here, we have, to understand, we have to understand why is the scribe telling us that he was the eighth son? He's saying it's an interesting fact that David was the eighth, the last of eight sons, because he was the new beginning of Israel. And they were jumping on that fact, because obviously these things would not have been missed by those who were obviously studying the scriptures at that time. They would have understood David's significance being eight. We have another number here saying that the Philistines, the Philistine drew near and presented himself for 40 days. 40 is representative of trials and testing. We see that within the context of Jesus going out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and being tested. 40 represents we are being tested here. And that's what the scribe is communicated to us. This was a difficult time, and we have been tested, and 40 days was representative of that. 
So the economy of information is telling us that Israel were in a pretty, a pretty difficult situation. So David is presented. His brothers has gone away. The rest of his brothers, who knows what they were doing, but his three eldest were, were away. His dad now says, go and find out what's going, what's going on with your brothers. So David receives a mission. And this is, again, um, very similar to the life of Joseph. We see him going out to see his brothers, the younger one being kept back. But there's nothing to say that, unlike Joseph, that David had a special relationship with Jesse. There's nothing to say that he was particularly well-liked. In fact, when it came to earlier in chapter 15, sorry, 16, that he didn't even present David to Samuel. And this is where we start to get the illusion that David was flawed even amongst his family. And as we go into the next section where David surveys the situation, and then after that we find that his brothers now make certain remarks about who David was. Again, you look at this and say, why was David not presented? Why was he not even considered? We may be flawed, but a situation has been set up that only David can answer. Verses 20 to 27. This is, David now comes and sees the situation. And so he says this. So David arose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. See, the allusion to shouting, not fighting. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. Then all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So all the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And he shall be that the man, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. And David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. So David comes as a young buck into the situation, and he's somewhat surprised. He sees Goliath, and he's not afraid, apparently. And then he asks the men, Why are none of you guys taking up this challenge? He asks them, what will be done for the man who gets rid of this enemy? And then all these great benefits, you know, the daughter, you become related to the king. Exemption from taxes. These are huge benefits. You know, think about never paying tax again. That's a big thing, you know. And obviously, the fame, the glory, the honor, everything else that's attached to that. I mean, you know... It's like not only would that person be a name, they would also be rich. And David's like looking at this and like saying, so how comes none of you guys are taking up this challenge? And he looks at the guy and says, you know, he's an uncircumcised Philistine. He has, and, and basically him saying he's uncircumcised says he doesn't even have God on his side. He has no promise over his life. Again, the allusion to eight is like, you were, you were circumcised on the eighth day. You have nothing. And the problem is that they probably looked at it as being naivety. And Eliab will say that as much to David. But the bottom line is, he's surveying the situation. He says, not only will you be rich, and you have honor. Wow, none of you 
are up for it. It's an interesting situation. Everything to gain, but no one wants to move. And this is, some, this is somewhat indicative of being in a spiritual situation. This was not merely a physical situation where a problem was being presented. This was a spiritual problem, and hence the reason why no one could move against it. Jesus makes that same remark when the, 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 the disciples coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, they come up against a, 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 a man who has a son who was basically demon, heavily demon-possessed. And the disciples had received power from Jesus to, to heal all the various sicknesses and ailments and the rest of it. And Jesus is coming from this huge moment on the Mount of Transfiguration with his three top disciples. Comes down, none of them could do it. The man begs him, says, help me. Jesus gets the son, delivers the son from the demon, demon possession. And the disciples turn around and ask him and says, why couldn't we do this? Except you be given to fasting and prayer. That's the reason why you can't do it. You weren't committed. Spiritual problems, spiritual issues can't be dealt with in very practical ways. And so what Israel saw as a huge problem, as a huge mountain... David didn't see it the same way. Because he saw the spiritual problem. And it was a huge one. Remember, Samson had long gone. And Saul was failing. And this is where they're saying, we need another hero. But we don't need a hero who's just going to run and just become another military leader. We need someone who's got the spirit of God in them. Spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. Another lesson from the life of David. 28 to 30. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left these, those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. There's nothing like burying your head in the sand. To make David have to say, is there not a cause? Eliab basically brings out one of David's flaws, or two of David's flaws. He says, you're prideful and you're rude. Um, in going through the book of Samuel, recently one of the studies we're doing on Wednesdays, we've been going through the book of Samuel. It's like, one of the things is you go through the life of David, you'll find that Pretty much for the most part of his life, everybody loves David, but David loves nobody. There's constantly the scribe writes, and Jonathan loved David, and the people loved David, but there was never a return of the affection. David was a good-looking kid who knew that everybody loved him and was rude and prideful about it. That's what the scribe basically tells us. He knew he was liked. And Eliab looks at him and says, basically, he's his older brother, he knows, he's seen David grow up. And he says, you're just being who you normally are. That's the reason why we don't call you in the house when we're having something going on. And we have got to flip back to the next chapter and realize that David was properly dismissed. They weren't a rich family because Eliab, again, making it quite plain, says, who have you left those few sheep? The little sheep that we have, who did you leave them with? Eliab is basically just like one of them outspoken older brothers, isn't he? He just knows where it's at. But at the same time, he's looking at a spiritual problem practically. And he's like thinking, what can you do? 
Why are you making noise? Hmm. But it's the phrase, is there not a cause, that really, as always, kind of compelled me as the center of this particular chapter. Amidst David's flaws being highlighted, the fact that he was arrogant, the fact that he was prideful and rude, it's the fact that he had to say, is there not a cause? Am I speaking like nothing is going on? When you have a spiritual problem, when you have an issue, when you have a difficult person in your life, when you have a difficult circumstance in your life, and someone comes up to you and talks to you and says, what are you doing about that? It's like David in this particular chapter saying, is there not a cause? And we say, I don't know what you're talking about. Eliab is trying to dismiss him and saying, it's not like that, it's not how you think it is. And he's saying, but you're just telling me that there's no problem. And obviously there is. There's a huge guy over there who cusses us every day. Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason for one of us to get up and actually slap this guy down? And he looks to the guys, and so obviously he can't talk to his older brother. His older brother is, 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 is due respect. And as it is in most cultures, a younger son can't talk to an older son like he's just anybody. So he turns to the men and he says, am I not got a good point? You see a little highlight of David's insolence there as well. He's no longer looking at his brother. He turns around to the guys and he says, have I not made a good point? And he wants them to see that he is not to be taken lightly. Is there not a cause? And this is why we are here today as Christians. We are supposed to be able to see the spiritual problems in life and be able to say to whoever it might be, is there not a cause for us to pray? Is there not a cause for us to worship God? Is there not a cause for us to do something other than what you already are doing? And standing around looking at somebody from one side of the valley and shouting at them and shouting at your problems is not resolving anything. You are not resolving anything because you also need to do something about it. And that's what David's saying. That's why David is different. We need to do something. The living action man. Thirty-one to thirty-seven. David now makes his case. So now his words are taken seriously. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, "Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with, the, with this Philistine." And Saul said to David, "You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him." For you are a youth and a man of war, and, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he, was defi- he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of, of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now, again, the economy of words will help us to understand that. Why was Saul prepared to let David go on and take the whole nation, as a representative of the whole nation, why was he prepared to stake so much on one boy, on one teenager? 16, um, in, 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 the, in the chapter behind, 16, in 16, 18, when David, when they were looking for somebody to help Saul, it was reported that David was a, a man of valor. What David had done in the wilderness, people already knew about. 
The Bible always explains itself. And so it was not a big deal to think that David could do this. They just didn't know how. And David brings up the past. He brings up things that he had done in the past, victories that he's had before, and he says, this will be just like that. It's no different. There is a need, I will meet the need. You look at what a shepherd is representative of in the Bible, both old and new. We see within Moses, we see that in David, we see that again in the context of Jesus as being called the shepherd of our souls. There is something which, um, it's like basically fiduciary responsibility. Fiduciary basically is a, is a, a word basically means that you act on someone's behalf without any benefit. And that's what David's life, and that's what the life of a shepherd like, was like. To look after sheep who couldn't help themselves. They'd done it merely because no one else could. I have to protect them. And growing up and learning how to protect sheep was perfect training ground, as far as God is concerned, for teaching people how to look after other people. To lead by leading people who can't help themselves. So much can be learnt through that. Whether that be through child raising, whether it be through helping a dependent, a totally dependent person. There's something that we learn about being there for somebody who cannot reciprocate. Cannot turn around and and say thank you. And David has learned, and David uses his, 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 his life as a shepherd to describe to them that I will care for these people here. I will not fail these guys because I will not have Israel become servants to Philistines. Even if I have to take them out of his mouth. And Goliath's mouth was all over them. He says, even if I have to take that sheep out of a lion's mouth, I will do that. So at the beginning of this particular section of the scripture, Saul is unconvinced. But he leaves. By the time we get down to verse 37, he's convinced that David can do this. Now, it is evident that Saul is no longer the man he needs to be. And he's unaware that now David has become the new man. Jonathan had become the new man before that. Now David has to step up. Because even this particular situation, there is no mention of Jonathan. Thirty-eight to thirty-nine says this: So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. This two verses represents David chooses to fight Goliath on his own terms. If we look back to the, first, um, to, to the first verses, specifically through verses 4 to 7 of this chapter, there was no way David thought he could win by being toe-to-toe to Goliath. He'd already been described as being the type of person, if he's going to come down to two people with a sword, swinging at each other, David didn't stand a chance. All right, we go back to my original point, again, an earlier point, which was you cannot try to solve a spiritual problem with a practical one, with a practical solution. You can't say, all right, okay, it's about being well-armored. The problem was, how are you going to defeat him when he's obviously a, a, a Goliath? He is huge. He has been described as having bronze armor, a heavy metal. 
And we see that the rules of warfare here, though quite reasonable, was that I'm not going to fight him toe-to-toe. I have no intention of being anywhere near Goliath when we start to fight. So David's faith, though obviously being that of, I can see what God is going to do for my life, he actually chooses to do it seemingly through a practical way, but he's seeing the spiritual situation. I will not fight you on your own terms. I will fight you on my own terms. We see today in modern warfare that Guerrilla warfare has always been a challenge for huge armies. We see it in Vietnam, where you cannot fight an enemy that chooses not to fight you toe-to-toe. And this has become a strategy for the weak, for those who do not have the huge arsenals that mega powers have. And this is something that we understand in modern warfare today, but this is something that David stood at that time. He says, we are not going to be able to send a tank against a tank in this, in this particular situation. Because their tank is huge. I have no intention of going and fighting him the way that he expects to be fought. I'm going to fight against his strengths. I'm going to fight him at his weaknesses. And that is, he cannot move. And sometimes this is when we're dealing with a problem, when we're dealing with an issue in our life, we use quantity rather than quality. We think that, oh, you know, the reason why I can't get over these bills and these debts, I need to earn more, rather than think of the practicalities of spending less. And that's what we do. We try to meet a challenge with more of the same thing that we normally do. Oh, I just probably need to just do more. I need to pray more. I need to fast more. I need to do more of what I think will help me to get over the situation. And the issue isn't quantity of what you're doing. There needs to be a quality to what you're doing. You need to think about how you're going to meet the task. How do you get over the obstacle by being merely practical? You've got to think ahead. You've got to think and develop a plan. And this is what we see within the life of David. He was smart. He could figure out that I'm not going to fight this guy with armor. I won't need armor because I'm going to be nowhere near him. Verses 40 to 47. The war of words. As in all fights, especially in the schoolyard, it starts with words. And lots of pushing. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And when all the assembly, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Not my hands, our hands. You know, when you look there, and um, it is funny because he said, when 
the law of, of male egoism makes it quite funny that when David has been described as good looking to, in the battle between David and Goliath, it's like people think that pretty boys can't fight. <laughs> and this is, the, this is the grand deception of David. You see this probably slim young dude coming out and he's a good looking dude. And he's like thinking to himself, what on earth is this? You crazy? A good looking guy is going to whip me? Not going to happen. And he sees him and he's like going, he's disdained him. He's like, he's like thinking to himself, look at this, is this, this isn't the challenge. This isn't what I was expecting. Is this it? And he's offended because obviously the rules of combat is like, it's like in the, in the days of the medieval, it's like a knight could only fight another knight. You know, it was, dis, it was dishonorable to send like a regular Joe Blog infantryman to fight another knight. A knight had got to the position of being a master, being owning land and becoming like close and tight to whoever the king or the queen was at the time. And so when a knight fought, they would only fight another knight. And so he sees David coming out, not even with armor. It's like, this is a disrespect to me. And sometimes, like I said, the problems that we have in life, like with Goliath, like they want to be taken seriously, is that sometimes our spiritual solutions means that we take them less seriously. And we look at them as, this is it, give me your best shot. We take away their edge. They're like, how come you're not taking us seriously? Why are you not prepared to feel my wrath? And we look at the problem and he says, you defied God. You know, it's like the, uh, when David speaks to him, it's like the police when they come and they, they, they display the authority in which they come. They don't come in their own name. They come and they say, you're under arrest. They let, remind you of your rights. They tell you what the law entitles you to. And David tells him what the law, as far as Israel tells them they're entitled to, it says basically you're entitled to nothing but die. Because of where you stand today, you are going to die by the authority that God has given to me. He also reminds him and says that the fact that I don't have a sphere and I don't have weapons today is just to remind you that God is the one who gives me the victory today. No sphere is necessary. God is going to hit you down. And we see a, a perfect blend of man's responsibility and God's providence. David is definitely going to throw that stone. But God is going to make Goliath fall. And David is saying that beforehand. His confidence, his faith never allows him to think that he's going to actually make the difference. Though he is actually making the difference. He is the one that Israel see. And there's always that point in your life where you're able to say, and you have to stand back and say, but for the grace of God, I was able to do this. And not say it as like some byline or something that a catchphrase or in Christianese, as people used to like to say, but really mean that. Say, by the grace of God, I am standing here today to tell the tale. By the grace of God, I am able to accomplish something I was never able to accomplish before. You saw me do it, but that was God. And this is exactly what David is saying. God will kill you today. I stand in his authority, in his power, and I'm going to show you that he doesn't need weapons 
like you think to do it. Spiritual problems need spiritual answers. And God is going to answer the call. You know, when you look back to verse 16, um, chapter 16 of this, this book, and, and Samuel is wrestling with the fact that God is no longer pleased with Saul. Something you've got to know is that, again, it's the Spirit of God talks to Samuel and says to him, the people have chosen their man, now I am choosing my man. I gave you the king you wanted. Now I'm giving you my king who won't listen to people who only listen to me. That's why David, with such impudence, says, I have only sinned against you, God. He doesn't say Uriah. He doesn't say Bathsheba. He says, I've only sinned against God because he's God's man. And he doesn't listen to anybody else. God had placed his man. And so this is what he's saying. He's so confident that David will not take glory for himself. He can rest assured in him. And that's why for generations afterwards he says, why can't you be a king like your father David, who's a man after my own heart? Flawed, but faithful. Forty-eight to fifty-four, the battle. It's surprising that in a chapter with fifty-eight verses, that the battle really comes down to only a few. Everything is preparing us for something that pretty much only lasted a, a moment, and these few verses capture what actually happened. So it was when the Philistines arose, the Philistine arose and came and drew near to to meet David, that David hurried. And ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Meet your problems head on. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. And he slung it and struck the Philistine in in his forehead. So that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistine, Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley of the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistine fell along the road to Sharim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Meeting your challenges head on. David ran, Goliath walked. And so he runs into an ideal position and gains the momentum to kill Goliath before he even knows what's going on. He has no sword, and the promise was that I'm going to take your head. And so he makes sure he fulfills that and takes the sword that was available to him. And this is not the first time David will use his sword. Later on, he's reunited with Goliath's sword um, when he goes to meet um, the priests. On when he, he basically he flees from Saul. So he has a, an ongoing relationship with this sword. And this sword was, as in military terms, a, a trophy that David had won the right to have. But the fact that the priest had it was something that he said showed that David gave it to the Lord. He wouldn't keep it to himself. Because what he said was the victory was God's. And so he gave it to the priests. And so all the people are now free and liberated to do which they couldn't do before. I don't know why it is that God chooses, chooses one person to arise out of a situation to liberate many. 
but his normal pattern is to choose one man who is faithful, put them in a position to influence and change the course of history. And all that they wanted to do now, now that Goliath was out of the way, they could do. And so they could shout and actually run into the battle. And many of us need freedom. And Jesus was the complete type. David was a type of Jesus, but Jesus was the ultimate liberator. He liberated people so that the things that we shout that we want to do are now possible. And this is why we go back to our initial text, our introduction, that Jesus Christ has now made that possible in a way that can benefit everybody. What happened here benefited only Israel of that time, in that particular place. But what Jesus does through acts of faith, through sacrifice, through meeting a challenge head on in the cross, in the resurrection, in his trial initial, his initial trial, he actually has made it possible for us to now shout into a victory that we can now pursue. God raises somebody up to set many people free. And so now fighting men who had lost the will to fight could now fight. And David made that possible through the power of God. The epilogue is an interesting one. It's interesting because Saul was no stranger to David. David was a musician in his court already. We see that from the, from the previous chapter. But Saul does a double take on David because Saul being a man who, was no, who knew God, who knew what God does, does a double take on David. You see something, then you see something again, it's like, this is not a normal dude. 55 says this. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. David was here again by the writer alluded to be of no nobility. Abner, who probably would have known many of the top leaders of the time, and the, the, you know, obviously the the, the, the Leaders of the tribes of Israel would have gathered together to, to take counsel with Saul. And this guy, though he was working for Saul, was not recognized. It's like working in a place where you see the boss and you'd think they would know your name, but they don't. They walk past you and it's like, who are you? Name's on the patch. <laughs> The history, but the history is, is, is so much important. The heritage was so much more important. It wasn't the fact that they knew it was David. Obviously, Saul had just spoken. He said, what's his heritage? Who's his father? Where is he from? You know, most of the uh, old school cultures are more interested in your heritage than who you are because they want to see... They, they want to see where you're coming from. Well, they want to see if you have the type of parents that would have raised you correctly. What is your heritage? And so this was now a point where in very much like Herod type of desperation, what is going on here? The fake, king of Israel, the fake king of Israel in Herod was now scared because a real king was allegedly being born. 
there was no mention of Benjamin ever having a king. But there was mention of a Judean being the king of Israel. So figuring out who this, who this young man was, was very much like Saul smelling a rat. And maybe you saw something in David running out into the battle because it was when he saw David leading the men now, which he should have been doing, he was now aware that he was being surpassed. Later on you'll see that he will now want to kill David. And when Jonathan leads his army in chapter 15 against the Philistines, he was prepared to kill Jonathan. There's nothing wrong with ambition if it's tamed. But ambition that wants to kick away the ladder is never good. To want to raise and build people up, to continue to lead and to see the best for Israel was not on Saul's mind. People need to lead so that others can lead. So as we look through the, uh, the breakdown of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, we see in verse 11, for such a time as this, as it was said in the book of Esther, there is a setting of a scene, there is a reason for why we are here at this particular present moment in time. There is a purpose to your life. As another movie adage says, cometh the hour, cometh the man. You are born with a purpose. And everything was being set up so that we could enter the stage where God has caused us to hit time and reality. 12 to 19 now tells us we are not victims of coincidences. Our destinies come rushing to meet us. That's why when we got to verse 12, David was introduced we have a problem. Who's going to resolve it? David. There's a problem in our homes. There's a problem in our workplaces. There's a problem in society. Who's going to meet it? Put your name there. We are rushing towards our destiny. We cannot, support, we cannot avoid it. 20 to 17 to 27. 20 to 27 says, Our perspective is unique for current situations. The way that we look at things, the way that David looked at things was specifically designed for us. People saw problems and people saw logistics and people saw how we're going to do this. They couldn't see an end to this problem. David saw an end to this problem. And it's with Goliath's head in his hand. Our perspective is unique. We need to use it. 28 to 30, our motives are challenged by others, whether they be demonic, whether they be our friends and our families, or whether they be even ourselves. People will come and tell us, we're rude. Who do you think we are? Like Eliab. Where do we stand in this problem? Who told you? When they slapped Jesus, it was done on the basis that who are you to say that the Spirit of God is not in the high priest? They will challenge our motives. And they will challenge our character. 31 to 37, our, our past is skillfully linked to bring hope into the present. The things that God had done in our lives, the things that have been accomplished already, are supposed to give us hope for the future. David looked at the lion and the bear and he said, this is exactly what's going to happen to Goliath. Our lives, as they have already been lived in success, should we have some, should help us to have hope for the future. 38 to 39 Know when to reject the help of others. Now that's something you have to take and use in wisdom. The armor of Saul was not going to help David win because David already knew what he needed to do. And learning when to say, 
I don't need your help, I don't need your advice, is something that you have to skillfully use in life. Because you know what God will have you do. There's times we look for counsel when really we don't need counsel. God has already spoken. 40 to 47. Speak in faith and truth even when ridiculed. Speak, you know, there's much where we we try to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to, you know, the charismatic movement. But the term of speaking in faith, where it's not faithism, but it's truly speaking what you believe God has told you in your heart. Being able to do that, being able to speak to a situation as it should be, because God has revealed it that way, whether it be through his word or personal revelation, we ought to speak as things ought to be. And our speech should be seasoned as such. Even those those around us wouldn't be. And 48 to 54, when it comes to the battle, when it comes down to there's always going to be a time where our our thoughts and our actions have to do something. And that is meet our challenges head on. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to pray your way out of it. Meet the challenge head on. Meet the illness head on. Meet, Meet the difficult relationships head on. I'm going to go through it. I'm not going to pray. You know, Jesus said, I would like this to go away from me. I would like that. And that's what we have to be able to say. We're not saying that we've got to like difficult situations and think that they are something to be disdained. He said he despised the shame of being in that situation. But meet the challenge head on. And says, but you know what? I've got to go. I've got to do it. The situations in our lives we just got to meet. And 55 to 58, and people are going to want to know who you are. But it's God in us. Our heritage, our ability to meet these, these needs. He says that as Jesus answered his accusers, he says, my father has sent me. We won't put our own father's name there. We will say our heritage is spiritual. My father in heaven has placed me here. When we go back to 1 Peter, um, let's close on this. First Peter 1 verse 13. To 21, and it says this, therefore, and let this just minister to you, let the words speak, because everything we've gone through should actually give greater clarity to Peter's line of thought in this first chapter as he's talking to people in difficult times. And he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Indeed, he he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him up, raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This has always been about Jesus. The life of David, his commitment, his dedication has always been about Jesus. These men look forward to the day when Jesus will come. Jesus has shown us the way. 
to meet our responsibilities, to live with a new father, with a new destiny. So when we look at those final verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17, who is this person's father? We might say we have an eternal heritage in Christ who has made us sons of God. We are flawed, to say the least. But it doesn't mean that we will not be found faithful like David was. Live faithfully. Live confidently. Do not live ashamed. Do not live fearfully. Live holy. Live with an expectation to receive. Live. Father, we thank you for the lives of your church, Lord. Individually and collectively, Lord. You have brought us together for such a time as this, Lord, that we might change. Lord, not only our lives, but we will be a catalyst for change. To set people free, Lord. Even as Jesus set the captives free, Lord. We look, Lord, to continue the work for our thoughts and our deeds, Lord, in commitment to make a difference in this world. Lord, forgive us where we've ran away from our problems and we've ducked and we've put our heads in the sand, Lord. Where we've heard our, our trials call out to us, Lord, and we have been ashamed to meet them. Lord, I pray you will help us to have greater strength and clarity of mind, Lord, that we might, might meet the spiritual challenges, Lord God, with the wisdom that you have provided. Help us to conduct our lives, Lord, in the newness that you have given us through Christ Jesus. Let us know that it's all about him. Help us to convince others, Lord God, that it's all about him. That we ought to worship and serve you with the spirit and truth. In our whole hearts, Lord. Our whole strength. Our whole minds. Bless this congregation, Lord. Help us, Lord, in our own difficult times. Help us to come together, Lord, and be a, a resource to one another. Help those who stand on the fringes, Lord, who have not made a commitment, Lord, to be drawn into you this very day, Lord. I pray that they will see a light that will so inspire their hearts, Lord. Help them, Lord, to meet the challenge of being a believer in spirit and truth. Let them be convinced thoroughly that they need you. Help us, Lord God, I pray. Amen.